Good morning. I'm James Hellman from The Washington Post, and this is The Daily 202 for Monday, October 19th. In today's news, Joe Biden leads President Trump in the polls, but so did Hillary Clinton. Democrats fear deja vu. Red state governors resist measures to slow the spread of the coronavirus, even as cases surge. And a federal judge strikes down Trump's plan to slash food stamps for 700,000 unemployed Americans. But first, the big idea. On August 5th, militants carrying the black flag of the Islamic State launched a daring land and sea assault on the strategic port city of Mosimboa de Praia in northern Mozambique. In less than a week, they routed government forces and captured the entire town, declaring it the capital of a new Islamic province. Days later, a different band of Islamist gunmen rampaged through a famous wildlife park for giraffes in Kure in Niger, just 35 miles from the country's capital. Firing from motorbikes, they killed eight people, including six French humanitarian workers. The two attacks on opposite sides of Africa are among scores of violent episodes that have shaken the continent in what experts are calling a breakout year for extremist groups affiliated with al-Qaeda or the Islamic State. Less than two years after the fall of the Islamic State's self-declared caliphate in Syria and Iraq, the terrorist group is attempting a comeback in Africa, with far-reaching implications for a region already beset by poverty, corruption, and the coronavirus. At least three Islamist insurgencies are surging across broad swaths of territory, from the deserts of the Sinai to the scrublands of the western Lake Chad Basin to picturesque Indian Ocean villages and resort islands in the southeast. The spike in terror attacks mirrors a steady, if less dramatic, increase in Islamist violence in parts of Syria and Iraq, driven by Islamic State fighters who slipped away after the caliphate's defeat and have now regrouped. Current and former counterterrorism officials, from Langley to Foggy Bottom, the Pentagon and the White House, and lots of key people on the ground in Africa, tell my colleagues Danielle Paquette, Suad McKennett, and Joby Warwick that while Trump presided over the final phases of the U.S.-led military campaign to destroy the physical caliphate, his effort to contain the group and its violent ideology has faltered. The rise in violence comes as Trump moves to slash U.S. troop deployments and threatens to curtail support for local governments on the front lines of the battle against Islamist militants. The White House is considering even steeper cutbacks in our military forces across Africa, despite warnings from the smartest analysts that such reductions will further hamper our efforts to check the extremists' advance and put our homeland at risk. Robert Richer, the former head of operations at CIA during the George W. Bush administration, is going on the record to warn that ISIS is not dead. But Trump keeps boasting about his successes at nearly every campaign event, including rallies this weekend. He refers to the Islamic State in the past tense. During his Republican convention speech in August, he said, quote, we obliterated 100 percent of the ISIS caliphate. Sadly, that's not the case. Even his own appointees quietly acknowledge that the threat has merely shifted to new regions and taken on new forms. In the 18 months since the fall of the Islamic State's last Syrian stronghold, a new report published by a West Point journal on counterterror documents how the ISIS's African affiliates have seen dramatic gains in territory, recruits, and firepower. By so many metrics, 
America is less safe today than it was four years ago. Our enemies don't fear us as much, and our allies don't respect us as much. Consider what's happening in Afghanistan, where Trump's recent tweet storm about pulling out all U.S. troops by Christmas has emboldened the Taliban. The Taliban is facing international condemnation for a 10-day assault in southern Helmand province. They forced thousands of villagers to flee their homes. Scores are hospitalized. Our Pam Constable reports from Kabul that the assault has aroused public alarm and anger, leading many Afghans to question why their government is holding peace talks with the Taliban, especially as the insurgents are hardening their negotiating position after Trump said he wanted to withdraw all U.S. troops by the end of the year. The Taliban has delegates to talks in Doha who are negotiating with the Americans and the Afghans. They welcomed Trump's announcement and they publicly wished for the president's reelection. And it was soon after, immediately after Trump's announcement that he wants to get all troops out by the end of the year, that the Taliban launched its assault in Helmand, triggering accusations that they violated the U.S. accord and jeopardizing the entire peace process. Trump administration officials have been begging the Taliban to stop, but there's little that they can do. And they met with the leaders of the Taliban over the weekend in Doha to try to salvage the deal that they have spent 18 months negotiating. So many of us have lost dear friends in Afghanistan. I think often of a high school classmate who was killed in action. Many of my friends have never been the same since they came home. So it's extraordinarily painful, agonizing even, to watch America lose her longest war this way. And that's the big idea. Here are three other headlines that should be on your radar this Monday. Number one. Democrats went to the polls four years ago, certain that they would elect the first woman ever to become president. They were punched in the face with a Trump upset. This time, they feel the punch coming from a thousand miles away. The worry is visceral and widespread, unassuaged by Joe Biden's lead in the polls. Privately, Trump's advisors are less bullish than their bosses, admitting that he's behind in several key states. But they believe he can close the gap over the next 15 days and they have no interest in broadcasting anything short of certainty. Biden campaign manager Jen O'Malley-Dillon has been telling donors, activists, and voters and reporters to assume that the current polling leads will not last. She says that Biden does not have a double-digit lead and not to believe that the polls are correct, especially at the national level. The Democratic Super PAC Priorities USA for a year has included a slide in its presentations predicting the election's outcome in a shock scenario in which Biden gets three percentage points less in white working class support than polling suggests, and the turnout among people of color is four percentage points lower than predicted. Right now, according to my colleague Mike Shearer, this scenario gives Biden 257 electoral votes and Trump 239 electoral votes leaving three states, Nevada, Pennsylvania, and Michigan, too close to call. A jump ball to 270. That doesn't mean that Biden's advantage is a mirage, just that the reality is more complicated and less conclusive than many would like to believe at this point. Polling shows Biden's position stronger on several fronts than Clinton's advantages at this point in 2016, including in the national polls, which don't always correlate to electoral college outcomes. John Anzalone, Biden's top pollster, notes that views of Trump are intensely negative, but they are not intensely negative toward Biden. In 2016, Trump and Clinton's negatives were essentially identical right before the election. Anzalone points to Biden's lead among independents, seniors, white college graduates, and suburban voters, especially women, all of which Clinton lacked. 
There is also a much smaller third party vote evident this cycle, removing a crutch that helped Trump win states like Wisconsin with just 47 percent of the vote. But even Anzalone does not describe himself as above the post-2016 stress that afflicts many in his party. He joked that the only answer to that is to have a healthy supply of alcohol available on election night. Number two, with cases surging to new highs and hospital capacity running low, North Dakota Governor Doug Burgum teared up last week describing a state caught in the middle of a COVID storm. To weather it, he said at a news conference, people need to keep their distance. They should wear masks and avoid gatherings. But the one thing he said North Dakota did not need were any legal limits on reckless behavior. The Republican, a former Microsoft executive, said that's not government's job. Case numbers are also rising again in other states where the virus was thought to be under control after months of widespread illness. Yet even as health authorities in small cities and rural towns plead for help in tamping down deadly outbreaks, Many Republican governors are resisting any new measures to slow the spread. Griff Whitty and Tony Rahm report that some governors are even loosening rules already on the books. Instead, they preach the mantra of personal responsibility, insisting that government interventions like mask mandates or business restrictions are unnecessary or harmful, and that people should be trusted to make their own decisions about how to keep themselves and their communities healthy. Public health officials say an over-reliance on personal responsibility is one of the reasons that America's struggle with the coronavirus has been so destructive compared to the rest of the world. 4% of the population, more than 25% of the deaths. We have more than 8 million cases and 220,000 of our fellow Americans are dead. Public health experts say it's unlikely to be the solution now to hope for the best, especially as Republican leaders from Trump on down send misleading messages and model dangerous behavior. Consider Iowa, another swing state. Coronavirus hospitalizations have regularly hit new highs this month. The state last week surpassed 1,500 total deaths. But Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds has refused to revisit her decision to lift almost every restriction on businesses and to allow students to go back into classrooms without wearing masks. Texas Governor Greg Abbott has forged ahead with his plans to fully reopen bars. The state's been averaging 5,000 new cases in nearly 100 deaths every day. But Abbott says he sees no reason Texas should not be able to, quote, reopen 100 percent in South Dakota, which, together with its neighbor to the north, has had the fastest growing infection rate in the country. Governor Kristi Noem has played down the significance of the climbing caseload, claiming that it's due to testing and that this is totally normal. Number three. Last night, a federal judge here in Washington struck down Trump's plan to slash food stamps for 700,000 unemployed Americans. In a scathing 67-page opinion, Chief U.S. District Judge Beryl Howell of the D.C. Court condemned Trump's agriculture department for failing to justify or even address the impact of sweeping changes that were proposed on states, saying that the plan's shortcomings, placed in stark relief amid the coronavirus pandemic, have become even worse as employment has quadrupled and rosters of the Supplemental Nutritional Assistance Program have grown by more than 17%. Six million new people have signed up for food stamps since March. Judge Howell says that what Trump is trying to do would, quote, radically and abruptly alter decades of regulatory practice, leaving states scrambling and exponentially increasing food security for tens of thousands of Americans. She says the Agriculture Department has been icily silent about how many adults would be denied benefits if the changes sought by Trump went into effect amid the pandemic. She concluded that, quote, the department's utter failure to address the issue renders the agency action arbitrary and capricious. 
Meanwhile, Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi has set a Tuesday deadline, meaning tomorrow, for reaching a stimulus deal with the White House. The House Speaker told ABC's this week that there are still significant differences that divide her and Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin. The on-again, off-again talks over a deal costing between $1.8 trillion and $2.2 trillion have been dragging on for months without producing any results and with continuing opposition from Senate Republicans. The window for action is narrowing fast. This is the first time Pelosi has put a deadline for the talks, indicating that if no agreement can be struck by tomorrow, it will not be possible to produce any deal before the election. Erica Werner reports that Pelosi and Mnuchin spoke for 75 minutes on Saturday, and they agreed to speak again today. Pelosi has not spoken with Trump himself in over a year now, but she reiterated Sunday that she's negotiating through his emissaries because there's little point in talking directly to a president who, as she put it, is not truthful. And that's The Daily 202 for Monday, October 19th. Thank you for listening. I'm James Holman. I'll talk to you tomorrow. The Daily 202 is brought to you by Cleveland Clinic and the new podcast, Caring for Tomorrow. I'm Joan London, the host of the series. Please join us as we explore the challenges and solutions that are defining the future of healthcare. Look for us wherever you get your podcasts.